Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome to Word Now. Word Now Productions, in association with the Fremont Center Theater and Eclipse One Media, present Word Now, a live storytelling show. Our evening of storytelling was recorded live on Sunday, March 20th, 2016, at the Fremont Center Theater at 100 Fremont Avenue in South Pasadena, California. Tonight's theme, Omens. To see an upcoming show or for more information, visit us on the web at wordnowstories.com. Like what you hear? Send us an email, info at wordnowstories.com. Listen to the voices of omens. This is part one. Thank you for listening. Hello, everybody, and welcome. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I was just told that today is National Storytelling Day. Aww. How about that? So, um, <laughs> that's right. And then on behalf of the Fremont Center Theater, welcome to our fourth show of Word Now. Um, it happens every other month. Our next show will be in May, on May 22nd. The theme will be War. And the show after that will be in July. It'll be on July 17th. And the theme is Independence. Um, please turn off all cell phones and video games. And you know who I'm talking to. Um, and, uh, oh, 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 and there will be a podcast. We are recording this for a podcast. So feel free to tune in to wordnowstories.com. And you can listen to the podcast. And you can listen to podcasts from our previous shows. And um, without further ado, I'm going to introduce our first storyteller. His name is Sam Firestein. At the ripe old age of 37, Sam learned a very basic lesson. When you scream and yell and shake your fist at the universe, the universe yells back. And the universe always wins. <laughs> Sam Firestein. I was 37 years old, it was the end of summer, and I was just laid out on my couch wallowing. Right? Her name, of course, it's a her. She had a name, and it was Agnes. And she was a costume designer, and she spoke three languages, and she skied black diamonds like she was perfect. <laughs> and a day earlier, I had looked at her and I said, I can't marry you. And I couldn't. We were at that place. It was time to get married. And there was something in my gut that just said, I can't. And then she left. 
and 24 hours of like, you have just destroyed your only chance at happiness later, <laughs> I was a little less sure. And then my phone rang and I got some really great news. Hey, Sam, guess what? The show, it got picked up. I was a TV producer. This was excellent. Workaholic dis uh, distraction, right? Best thing ever. But the schedule pushed and we don't start for three weeks. Oh, I'm like, what am I supposed to do for three weeks? And then I heard, go to Alaska and go glacier kayaking and camping. <laughs> like literally, the universe yelled back. I'm like, no. Uh-uh. Like a trip, yes, absolutely. Alaska, absolutely not. Right? And I spent the entire next day trying to book a trip anywhere else. But I, I couldn't do it. Like there was just this overwhelming sense, this urgency in me, go to Alaska, go to Alaska, go to Alaska. And it made no sense, right? Because I hadn't been camping since I was nine years old. And the last time that I'd been in a kayak, never. <laughs> so let's start with Alaska. Oh, it was awful. And I tried, I did not want to do this, but I just had to go. And I got on the internet and I ended up, it was the end of summer, and I ended up booking the very last spot on the very last kayaking trip going out for the year. And then I had to go on Saturday and buy a, to a store where they sell things for that because I didn't own any of that. And then Sunday I fly to Alaska and Monday I am sitting in a kayak in the far reaches of the Kenai Fjord watching a bear chase my guide around our camp. I'm gonna die. Oh, well, he's gonna die and then I'm gonna die. Like, we're all gonna die. This is Alaska. It is no joke, right? I spent a week in the bush. I kayaked to three different glaciers. We get to the first one and we're like, oh, it's majestic. And then it crashes down like the face of it, collapses in the water, nearly kills all of us. And then uh, I, and the other day, I, like, uh, I paddled through a bloom of jellyfish, 10,000 strong. Do you know what 10,000 jellyfish looks like? Oh, it's not good. No, it is like horrible. I mean, it was crazy. And I, on the boat back, like I spent a week doing that, and then on the boat back to Seward, right, would have been this four-hour pleasure cruise out into the bush, was now six hours of just this heart stomping, just riding up and down on these giant swells. We were in a storm, an Alaskan storm. And I am hanging on to the boat, right, for dear life. We're slamming up and down. I'm staring out the back at a wall of water 20 feet high which just broke all laws of physics as far as my mind could grasp it. And I gotta tell you, it was awesome. Because it was then that I learned the greatest remedy for a broken heart and regret, and you're obsessing on an ex-girlfriend, go on a trip where everything you do tries to kill you, right? <laughs> oh, it's the best. It, oh, and I wanted more, right? Because the thing was, like, I was in Alaska without a plan. The plan was supposed to be Italy with her. I was supposed to be in Italy with my ex-girlfriend. Not Alaska, but I'm in Alaska. And I just start asking locals, what do I do? What do I do? Where do I go? And I did everything that they told me. 
And over the course of my second week, I just descended into this like apocalypse now, kill me or kill the pain, action adventure thrill fest. And it was amazing, right? And then the one thing though that everybody in Alaska told me to do was go to Denali, go to Denali, Denali. Denali is Denali National Park, and it is the size of Massachusetts, right? It is huge, and it's where Mount, it used to be called McKinley, now they've restored the name to Denali, so Mount Denali is there. It is incredible. So I go, and when I get there, I find out there are only two ways to see it. By foot, it's asking a lot. <laughs> or get on a tour bus with tourists for an eight-hour ride. No. Absolutely not, right? Because now I have transformed. I'm grizzly Sam. And I got one day left in Alaska, and I am not wasting it on a bus with tourists. No, I am going whitewater rafting, right? I'm going to die in some rapids. This is what I'm doing. I was, until they called, and they said, yeah, man, trip got canceled. I'm like, no, 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 no. I need this. I need it. And he goes, mm, sorry, you know, end of season. And I said, well, what am I supposed to do? And he goes, oh, have you been on the Denali tour? I'm like, fine, give me a ticket. I'll, let me have one. And he sells me a ticket. September 8th, bus A23, 6.40 a.m. Awesome. And the next morning, I'm standing there. It's 6.30 in the morning. It is 22 degrees, and I'm all alone at this bus depot, and it is, I am bitter, it is bitter cold, and I am just standing there staring at this ticket, right? And I'm looking at it, and it's like, September 8th, September 8th, September, what is with September, oh. And I remembered. It was the anniversary of the day that I met Agnes. And it all came crashing back down on me, right? Like all the doubt, all the fear. I mean, it was so easy to be single on this thrill ride in Alaska. But in 24 hours, I am getting off of a plane in Los Angeles. And I don't know if I have just made the worst mistake of my life. I don't know if I'm going to be OK. I just don't know. And I'm scared. And now I'm going to get packed onto a stupid bus. <laughs> And it shows up, A23, and I get on, and it's packed with people. It's like stuffed, like there's one empty seat in the back. And I start walking to the back of this bus, and everybody on it starts going, good morning, good morning, how you doing, welcome aboard. And I'm, I'm from Los Angeles. <laughs> Two things, we don't ride buses, we don't talk to strangers. So I sit down in the back of the bus, last seat, and this older couple in front of me, they turn around and they go, hi, welcome aboard, so nice to have you. I'm like, hi, thank you, who are you people? <laughs> and she goes, oh, well, we're 50 retired couples from South Carolina. <laughs> and we've been on a private tour of Alaska for the last two and a half weeks. I'm like, you're kidding. Like, I am trapped now on a bus with a hundred retirees from the South. I'm the only outsider, Grizzly Sam, from Los Angeles, right? And I, it's just getting worse and worse and worse. 
But they're very sweet. And the woman, she looks at me and she goes, and by the way, my name's Pat and this is my husband, Henry. And I go, hi, Pat, Henry, my name's Sam, nice to meet you. And she goes, Sam? Did you say Sam? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and then I hear somebody else, the next row, Sam, did he say Sam? And then row by row in the bus, Sam, Sam, did that boy say Sam? Is this Sam? Did this guy say Sam? Is it Sam? Is it Sam, 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 <laughs> until the whole bus, Sam, Sam, Sam. And I'm like, what is going on? I am trapped on a bus in Alaska. It's 6.45 in the morning and there's 100 Southerners just going, Sam, 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 Sam. <laughs> And I look at Pat, and she goes, is your name really Sam? And I go, yes, why? Now she's speechless, and she just thrusts a piece of paper at me. I take it. Something out of like somebody's home printer. It says Alaska Bingo. <laughs> Something their tour guides typed up and handed out at the airport in South Carolina. See a bear. See a moose, meet an Eskimo, right? There's like 30 or 35 Alaskan things on this piece of paper. <laughs> Except for the very last one. Meet someone named Sam. For the last two and a half weeks, a hundred Southerners had been traversing Alaska. Airports, planes, trains, national parks, cruise ships, I mean everywhere, asking everybody they met, is there someone here named Sam? Is your name Sam? Is there anybody here named Sam? I had gotten driven to Alaska, I'd driven there by I don't know what, right? but everything that had to conspire in my life and theirs to put me on that bus, sitting in that seat at that moment, holding that piece of paper with my name on it was inexplicable. And I knew, I knew, in that moment I knew, and I just got flooded with this sense of peace. I was gonna be okay. I knew when I got off that plane in Los Angeles that I would be okay. And it also really helped that I had a hundred people cheering, Sam, we found Sam. <laughs> For the next eight hours, these people adopted me into their tour. They wrapped themselves around me. I mean, I had a hundred Southern grandparents just loving me through Denali, right? Which are the best kind of grandparents you can ever ask for. I mean, every time we saw wildlife, Sam, did you see the bear? Sam, did you see the moose? Did Sam see the sheep? I want to know, did he see the sheep? Like, I mean, there, and at lunch, oh my God, have another sandwich. You look thin, eat more. Like, it was great, right? They put me in the group photo. I mean, it was amazing just amazing and at the end of the day when we were parting company right that they all hugged me oh and by the way the Denali tour spectacular like the greatest thing I did up there if you ever go to Alaska you must do this <laughs> best eight hours of your life but as we're all leaving and we're parting company I went up to their tour guide and I said Susan you have to tell me 
why did you do this? Why did you put my name on that piece of paper? And she goes, I don't know. I was sitting there. I was typing it up the night before we left, and it just popped into my head, and something about it felt right. And so she put it on there. And then she got this big smile, and she said, and I guess it was just meant to be. And it was. Thank you. Our next storyteller is Jill Demby Guest. Hear what happens when a dream initiates an illicit love affair. Jill Denby Guest. When my daughter was applying to college, she said, Mom, you never told me about your college experiences. And this is why. <laughs> I was madly in love with him, my college English professor. He was my TA in honors English, my sophomore year at Ohio University. I was 19, he was 25. It all began in a class on moral responsibility, <laughs> as seen through the eyes of writers. I listened enraptured as Nigel Radcliffe explained the Kitty Genovese case and posed questions about our thoughts on moral responsibility. My brain was exploding with new thoughts, ideas, and questions, and so was my heart. Professor Radcliffe was the spitting image of a young Hugh Grant, handsome, brilliant, but untouchable. When he lectured, he had an intelligent aloofness about him that wasn't snobbery, but something that said, I don't know it all either. I'm just a passenger on this journey too, as if he could level the playing field. After class, I'd watch him through his office window, sexily smoking cigarettes. <laughs> Each time he raised one to his mouth, the afternoon light caught the glint of a gold wedding band on his left hand. But with every deep inhale, I imagined my lips were in its place. <laughs> one night, he came to me in a dream. It was a visitation, an intuition like nothing I'd ever experienced, a romantic fairy tale, my prince's come type dream, invoking to me that he was the one. When I awoke, it felt so real, I was convinced it was an omen a vision of our future together. The next day, I ran into him in front of the student union. Terrified but oddly confident, I told him about my dream. He said he'd had a dream about me too <laughs> and asked if I would meet him after class. We took a drive out into the hills and parked by a graveyard covered with fiery fall leaves. Walking amidst the headstones, he kissed me. One kiss, then another and another. With the sun setting, lying against the gravestones, I was drunk with love. The next few weeks, while his wife was away, we spent all our time together. As crazy as I was for him, I felt guilty. Even though it was the free love 70s, he was cheating on his wife. And though I'd never seen her on campus, I was afraid I might bump into her. Not knowing where to turn, I called my brother for advice. He's married but he's going to leave his wife for me. The optimism and arrogance of youth. Torn between my head and my heart, my gut was telling me this adulterous affair would not go well. 
So I left a letter in Nigel's mailbox telling him I wouldn't see him again until he divorced his wife. <laughs> but a Timothy Leary quote kept echoing through my head. Nobody comes into your life by mere coincidence. Trust your instincts. Do the unexpected. And even though I'd never dropped acid, I believed him. <laughs> 10 days later, Nigel left his wife, hired an attorney, and filed for divorce. His wife moved out, and I moved into Nigel's house, deep in the countryside, 30 miles from town. Just like magic, my dream had come true. Every day was blissful as we began to build our life together. Just watching him asleep on the pillow next to me was thrill enough. After years of family torment, I finally had an anchor, and we would be married. Then something strange began to happen. Other professors began leaving their wives for their students. <laughs> Apparently, I had started a trend. <laughs> we had swiftly become a small community of adulterers. The divorce rate in town that year jumped 50%. <laughs> the newest convert to our community was Professor Jonah Brummel, a Keats expert and son of a Southern Baptist minister. He and he had left his wife and two young children for freshman Karina, a fragile Nordic-looking blonde. They moved in with us in order to stabilize, a word I use loosely because we were all a little unhinged. <laughs> then came Dan and Cindy and Frank and Ella who moved in down the road. Quickly, our home became a halfway house for philandering professors. <laughs> in the following months, we hosted parties with lots of drinking, drugging, pot-filled nights around huge bonfires where Jonah would satirize his father's evangelical healings. One by one, we all stood in line waiting for redemption. Then one day, while breezing through the local town paper, I saw it, the legal notice about divorces. And there it was in black and white. Nigel Ratcliffe divorced from Elizabeth Ratcliffe. Grounds, adultery. Suddenly, I couldn't breathe. My heart was pounding. The room was spinning. Oh my God, I'm an adulterer. I've just destroyed a marriage. This was serious business. In my lust for adventure, had I actually superseded my emotional ability to handle it? And maybe love wasn't free. In some way, you had to pay. Nigel had seen the paper, too, and he was depressed. I started crying. He tried to assure me it wasn't my fault. We'd fallen in love. It was out of our hands. But a niggling voice kept telling me it wasn't. At Christmas, determined to make it work, I took Nigel home to New Jersey to meet my family and cement our future. At least if we were married, it would show the world we were serious. Nigel asked my father for his permission, but there was no, no way my father was gonna consent to the marriage. He told Nigel it was because he wasn't Jewish, but privately he told me he thought Nigel was unstable. Back in Ohio, Nigel's depression grew worse. He confessed to having acid flashbacks. He'd be outside looking at the house, and suddenly the paint would start peeling off it, and the edifice would begin to crack and crumble. These episodes became more frequent. I began having anxiety attacks. The man had left his wife for me. The fissures in our relationship had become canyons, and my overwhelming guilt would not allow me to admit the terror I was feeling as I watched Nigel fall apart. 
Nigel's biggest fear was that he'd end up in the mental hospital on the hill. The more depressed he grew, the more anxious I became. I knew I had to leave, but I couldn't bring myself to tell him. Finally, I got some Valium, which gave me the clarity to know I had to jump ship. I was so frantic for Nigel to get better, I suggested he go back to his wife or that we at least take a break. You can't leave me now. You're all I have. Then he went to the closet, took out a rifle, and walked outside. It was a pitch black night, and then a gunshot went off. I can still hear the echo. A few minutes later, he walked back inside the house. Now my fear was overtaken with rage. The divide between us had become too big, his instability too daunting. I decided to move back into the dorm. The next time I saw Nigel was in the mental hospital on the hill. He tried to commit suicide. My father's prediction was right. As karma would have it, years later, my marriage was shattered by betrayal. Like Nigel's wife, I suddenly had to face a life I hadn't wanted, anticipated, or planned for. So while I didn't tell my daughter that story, <laughs> I did tell her this. If you ever considered dating a married man, think about the consequences. And if your love affair starts out in a graveyard, consider it a sign. <laughs> and when you take a class on moral responsibility, be sure to do your homework. When you're a little older, I'll tell you why. Our next storyteller is Nancy Murphy. Nancy is a writer and storyteller who will be performing her solo show, Freak Out, in the Hollywood Fringe Festival this June. Tonight's story is an excerpt from that work and is titled, Goodbye, I Love You. It was a sign of things to come, and it wasn't easy, but then dying never is. Nancy Murphy. I should have realized when my mother chided me for being maudlin that we would not have a proper goodbye when she died. We were in the kitchen, our usual place for conversation. I was visiting from LA. It was 1985. Sitting at the round oak table under the Tiffany-style lamp, I looked across the burnt orange-colored countertops at my mother as she stood at the sink, rinsing the coffee pot. This was her favorite perch in the house. From there, she could see out the window to the driveway in the front of the house. Whenever any of us visited, we would first see her bright face in that window, followed by her excited figure at the open front door as we came up the sidewalk. When we talked in the kitchen that day, my mother had just been diagnosed with polycythemia vera, a rare blood disorder. It's really more of a nuisance, she said. I just have to go on a blood thinner and then get a weekly blood test so the doctor can monitor my red blood cell count and then adjust the dose if he needs to. Oh, I said, so will that cure it eventually? Or do you have to do this for the rest of your life? 
Well, it is a degenerative condition, so it's not going to get any better. But it's not going to change suddenly or anything either. It's manageable. Degenerative? What does that mean? That it gets worse over time? Could it shorten your life? I suppose it could, but really, it's not a big deal. Lately, I had been doing some math. I had moved to LA from Philadelphia in my mid-20s, and I had managed to get home about once a year. I figured that if I kept up that pattern, I would have maybe 30 more parent times in my life. That sounds like a lot of times, but to me, it was odd that it was a finite number. I always saw that as an unlimited thing. My parents had always been there. And now with this new medical condition, did that further reduce the mom times to 20? It was then that I realized that my mother would, in fact, die one day. Up to then, I never believed either of my parents would die. And not because I was in denial exactly, I just didn't think about it at all. That's the innocence of being in your 20s. Overwhelmed, I got up from the table that day and went over to my mother. I put my arm around her shoulder and I leaned my head against hers. And with tears starting, I said, Mom, I don't want you to die. She moved away quickly and stopped me. Oh, no, let's not get maudlin now. I'm not worried about this, and I don't want you to worry about it either. Not worrying her children was important to her. Even when complications arose a few years later, and she was in and out of the hospital in the months leading up to the birth of my first and only child, her first grandchild, she had planned to come out and help us when the baby came. It was all we talked about. Then one day she called and she said, you know, if this doesn't resolve itself, I might not be able to make the trip out. And maybe you should make some other arrangements for some help. What? You might not be able to come out. Terror raced through me. Terror that she was sicker than I thought. And terror that I had no idea how to take care of a baby. <laughs> she didn't make it out. She was at home the night I called to tell them Monica was born. She sounded happy and strong on the phone. But then a couple of days later, she went back into the hospital. And then things deteriorated quickly. We spoke briefly that week. But then she was put on pain medication, and calls became difficult. She died 11 days after my daughter was born. She must have known she was dying because she told my father that under no circumstances am I to come back for the funeral. She said, I needed to be home with the baby. Being bossy beyond the grave, that so suited her. Of course she was right, and it was nice to have her preemptive permission. And even though she knew she was dying, she didn't say goodbye to me or to anyone. Who starts that conversation, anyway? None of us said goodbye because we expected her to make it. And isn't it a betrayal if you say goodbye, like you've lost faith in their ability to recover? Maybe you've lost faith in God, too. And is it necessary? I have envied deathbed scenes that friends have shared with me, how profound they can be, and how much closure the person says they've experienced from saying their goodbyes. 
maybe we weren't the kind of family who could have handled that. It's not really part of the Irish character to express big emotions. <laughs> Growing up, we laughed a lot. We were angry sometimes, moody a lot, but not goodbye, I love you, weeping at the bedside. That seemed very Italian, <laughs> operatic. It might have embarrassed us. But still, I wonder, would saying goodbye have made it easier for us to deal with her death? We were in such shock. It's hard to say. And I forgive her. I know she was weak at the end. She fought as hard as she could and then slipped away. It can happen that way. Her parting gift to us was each other. There were five of us kids born in six years. I think that makes us technically quintuplets. It felt that way growing up. But grief has a way of flattening a person. You lose your pride and your defenses. We became closer in grief than we ever would have in joy. And we've continued to be there for each other over the years. As a mother, I'm similar to mine in some ways. Like her, I have a bottomless pit of interest in every detail about my daughter and her life. But on the other hand, I'm not as stoic as my mother. I'm more of an open book. She never let us see her cry. I never wanted to burden my daughter with my emotions, but there were times I felt it was healthier to be real. I recently turned 60. And it was a real wake-up call. After all, my mother was 63 when she died. My own death, while probably not imminent, <laughs> will happen. And when it does, my parting gift will be to say goodbye to my daughter and to tell her some things that she can draw on later for comfort. I want to assure her that she can get through grief and that it does get easier over time. And I want her to know that there can be beauty in loss. And lastly, I want her to understand that love doesn't die just because a person dies. Once you are loved, that love is alive. And it is yours forever. Our next storyteller is Bill Brottrup. He is an actor and writer currently appearing as the savvy child psychologist Dr. Joe on TNT's Major Crimes during the day and as a love-struck Victorian in the very well-reviewed Antius Theatre Company's Cloud Nine by Night. Bill Brottrup. Now here I go again, I see the crystal visions. I keep my visions to myself. I go to the desert for answers, to seek truth, to know myself. Driving through the scorching heat with the windows down, the city melts away, the shoulders relax, and the mind opens. I'd had a bad audition. 
I slinked out feeling a little angry, a little humiliated, a little confused about who I am and what I should be doing with the rest of my life. In the carnival that is Hollywood, I often find it difficult to discern the messages that the universe is sending my way. But happily, I know a secret oasis, a modern-day Delphi in the desert where, if you listen carefully, you will be spoken to in signs and portents. Seek out the purity of vision that can only be found in Laughlin. <laughs> I used to love Vegas, but I loved Vegas when it was 99 cent shrimp cocktail and Kena waitresses at Circus Circus. Now it's all high end. You have to make reservations at every trattoria and brasserie. It's family friendly. It's ruined. <laughs> but Laughlin remains. It's in Cal Navari, the magical triangle of desert where California, Nevada, and Arizona meet. There are $20 a night motels shaped like steamboats on the Colorado River. There's lots of smoke and cheap prime rib and watered down whiskey on the house. It's real, it's gritty. It's where I heard a snaggletooth woman in a swimming pool say to her son, now that you're 18, you can buy your own damn cigarettes. <laughs> and 25 cent roulette. You can barely find dollar roulette in Vegas anymore, but in Laughlin, they still have quarter roulette. And I believe that if you're in the right headspace, the numbers will speak to you, give you answers, tell you their truths. 22 and 23 always, they're my good friends. Then 20, who is sweet and unassuming. I love 31, 33, and 35, three tough guys, loners, but pals. The 8-5 split, a divorced couple, but they just can't give each other up. And then if I'm doing well, the angelic 12, maybe the bookish 10, if there's a crowd favorite, it's that party girl, 17. And if things are going really well, you can always throw out a few chips to appease the backstabbing nine or number four, so bitter. You have to be in the groove, in the zone. And then, as Stevie Nicks says, you'll know. You will know. Oh, 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 you'll know. The numbers in Laughlin will speak to you. But first, you must pass through the desert. Maybe it's a remnant of my time in Catholic school. Yes, it's true that after watching the Song of Bernadette, I thought I might have seen an image of the Virgin Mary in a rock. But I believe that messages are out there waiting for us to receive them. And that's how I live. If, say, you're at Target and you hear Stevie singing Gypsy over the Muzak, buy something. If you're driving and you notice that the time on the digital clock reads 11.13, that's a very bad omen. Immediately detour. This need to gain confirmation from an outside source has been with me for a long time. My first agent encouraged me to change my difficult to pronounce last name and booked me a session with a numerologist who determined that no, I should in fact retain Brocktrup as it adds up to an 11-2, a very rare and fortuitous number bound for success. And look where I am now. <laughs> Heed the signs. <laughs> now there you go again. You say you want your freedom. So I was driving and listening to Stevie, heading out of LA, opening, getting in touch. And I started thinking about Betty's triangle. Betty teaches this acting class I was in. And she says performers should look at the triangles of their personality. Like maybe you're a sarcastic, neurotic, stay-at-home mom or a ditzy urban yoga teacher. The three angles inform each other and tell us who we are, hone in. So I was driving and thinking about my triangle. <laughs> Wind through my hair, open collar, the heat, the leather seats, 
let's see, brooding rebel poet, maybe, or dark mystic cowboy. Something in there feels very right. <laughs> but it was hard to let go, get into the flow of the desert, just passing West Covina now. <sighs> I couldn't stop, couldn't stop thinking about that stupid audition. One of those auditions that seem to be increasingly the norm nowadays, that kind of could be anyone, kind of they have no fucking idea what they want kind of audition. There was a paunchy grandfather type, a skinny razorhead guy, and me. Which one was I, I wondered? Driving, the wind, the heat. Oh my god, I'm the gay one. I'm the token gay one. A sensitive gay cowboy. Huh. Well, that doesn't seem so bad. It's, it's kind of cool, actually, kind of bad boy in a post-brokebacky kind of way, right? <laughs> I, can, I can live with that. Thunder only happens when it's raining. Anyway, I have days to figure it out. The answers will come when I get out of these suburbs, really hit the open desert, reach Laughlin. Don't force it. I, I do feel bad about leaving the cats alone for the weekend. I love the cats, Cindy and Pip and now little Herman. After the rat incident, don't ask, we got Cindy from Kitten Rescue. She's amazing, and I call her a gateway animal because I used to not really like animals at all. I never liked cats, but she's so sweet, and she just purrs all day, and then I felt bad because she's very social, and I was afraid she was lonely, so we got Pip, who was a scrawny feral, and now chunky little Herman, and I say gateway because now I love all animals. love Animal Planet and the World Wildlife Federation, and I went to the furball at the skirball, and gay cat lady cowboy. <laughs> Oh dear, players only love you when they're playing. And then I hit Laverne, you know, by Pomona, where the 10 and the 210 and I think the 57 all come together. Anyway, there's always traffic there, no matter what time of day you're driving through, no one knows why. And the thing I hate about traffic is the waste of time. I like efficiency, getting things done, time management. And now we're at a dead stop, which makes me crazy, so I take out my car knitting. Oh. <laughs> I know you think you can't knit in the car, but you totally can. You'd, you'd be surprised how easy it is to get a couple of rows done if you're doing something simple like garter stitch on a size 11 needle and... Oh my God. Neurotic knitting cat fancier. Persnickety feline friendly fiber artist. Oh, oh, just drive. When the rain washes you clean, you know. 300 miles later, I screeched into the asphalt parking lot of the Colorado Bell on empty, sunburned, crazed, needing answers. Who am I? What am I? I stumbled into the red velvet sanctuary of the casino, ordered a bourbon, and like a lost, weary pilgrim, moved immediately to the great mandala, the roulette wheel, la rue de fortune. I placed $25 under the green felt of the table. 100 chips, 100 chances to clear my mind, listen to the music of the spheres, discern my message. I know it's here. I can feel it. The dealer gazed at me through her cold eyes of jade, sphinx-like. <laughs> Speak to me, numbers, I whispered in my mind. I picked up a chip reaching toward Deer 23, but something stopped me. Was that the trickster 36 laughing? Maybe it was the wise crone 29 who would help me. I reached my chip toward her. Why was 22 silent? 22, my friend, speak. I felt nothing. Stern 13 began to lecture, and 3 and 18, those nobodies began to bully. <laughs> You'll know. You will know. All the disparate voices, the static, the cacophony. If you're a person who believes in messages, the danger is being overwhelmed by them. 
unable to function until the horoscope says it's a propitious day for Pisces to begin a journey, <laughs> grasping for meaning in every trivial gesture. The croupier raised her graceful arms above the table. Her red lips began to part. Priestess, give me the answer I have traveled across the desert to find, I thought, the clay chip still poised in my trembling fingers. Tell me what I need to know. I'll interpret. She spoke by three words. No more bets, she intoned. No more bets. <laughs> going to have a 10-minute intermission. Please be back in 10 minutes for more stories. Word Now Productions, in association with the Fremont Center Theater and Eclipse One Media, presents Word Now, a live storytelling show. Our evening of storytelling was recorded live on Sunday, March 20th, 2016, at the Fremont Center Theater at 100 Fremont Avenue in South Pasadena, California. To see an upcoming show or for more information, visit us on the web at wordnowstories.com. This is Michael Lache from Eclipse One Media at eclipse-one.com. Eclipse One, new media for a bold world. Word Now, personal stories told around a theme. Visit us on the web at wordnowstories.com. Thank you for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.